Survival Podcast. Welcome to an episode of Friday Flashbacks. After 15 years and hundreds of interview shows, we decided to run them as flashbacks every Friday, beginning with the oldest of them and going forward. There's a tremendous library of wisdom in all the great interviews we've done over the years, so sit back and enjoy. Whether this is your first time or even your second time around with today's episode, I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get access to over 70 awesome discount codes on products and services you likely already use. Things like seeds, cannabis products, food storage items, custom roasted coffee, and even cool stuff like ammo and moonshine stills and more. So support the show, get all your money back and more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Now let's get into today's Friday flashback. And today we are rewinding back to November the 30th, 2010. Originally episode 560. This episode was called Shipping Container Construction, the good the bad and the ugly. Uh, and it was with a listener and community member who didn't want to give up his last name, so we simply called him Mike, which, by the way, is one of the most common names in America, so it could be any Mike out there. Uh, anyway, he was from the Midwest U.S., and he was working on a very large multi-container project that was 100% underground, and he had some really good advice for anybody who was saying, I'll just get me here. Ship them container and bury it under the ground. So you're going to learn a lot in this episode if you never heard it the first time. And I think this is something a lot of folks in the TSP community, the self-reliance homesteader, prepper, all of that, think about is how to use these containers in a way that will improve our lives. Uh, provide low-cost housing, storage, maybe some sort of a grow room for something like mushrooms. A lot of things that can be done with these. But you need to know some things if you're going to do this. And this was a fantastic interview, even though it's almost 14 years in the past. So let's flash back to November 30, 2010, episode 560. Shipping container, container construction, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Folks, uh, as I said, we have a, a longtime listener named Mike with us today to talk to us about uh, one of the projects he's been working on for a long time involving shipping containers. And uh, we're just going to call him Mike today, and he's from somewhere in the Midwestern United States, and we'll leave it at that. Mike, thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. You bet, Jack. Good to talk to you. So, Mike, before we get into your your project and what you've been working on and, and, and what people really tuned in here today about, about shipping containers, can we just talk real quick about how did you get interested in preparedness in the first place? Well, it kind of goes back all the way to the Y2K. Uh, I, I had my concerns back then, like most people did. Uh, did the typical put away some water and canned goods and things like that. Uh once it was over with, I kind of went back into my normal normal lifetime. Uh, about three years ago is when I really started to get my eyes opened as to the, the problems that we're facing in this country. It actually started uh, by watching Glenn Beck, you know, back when he was on, <coughs> excuse me, on CNN before he uh, moved over the Fox Network. I listened to him for several months, uh, began reading some of the books that he recommended, like 5,000-year leave. Forgotten Man, uh, I watched O'Reilly's program a lot and uh, read his book called Culture Warrior. And from there, I kind of moved on to uh, some a little more serious books about uh, the economy, such as Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, that, that's a pretty serious book. gets into the, uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve. Uh, from there, I had a friend recommend to me the One Second After in Patriots, and you know what those are like. That's, that's when I really started to get serious. Uh, actually, I was downloading an audiobook on iTunes uh, one day 
about a year or so ago, and while I was doing that download, I went over to their podcast section, which I had never been onto before, and just punched uh, survivalism or something like that into their uh, little search box, and your program came up. And that's where I found out about you and about your show and been a, you know, a daily listener ever since. Well, lucky for us, man, because I'm really glad to have you on tonight. You're you're doing something that, uh, you know, we'll only say as much about as you're comfortable with tonight, but what you're putting together is pretty awesome. And uh, you're using shipping containers in that. And I've had, God, I, I bet you I get three or four people a week sending me just the basic, Jack, what do you think about building a shelter with, with shipping containers question? I mean, that's, a, that's an ongoing over and over question. And then I get the more sophisticated questions about burying them and, and all this other stuff we're going to talk about tonight and actually constructing dwellings with them. But what made you kind of zero in on that? What got you, uh, you know, thinking, hey, maybe I need to do something with shipping containers? Well, it's kind of a long story, but it actually goes all the way back to the white 2K era again. Uh, I've got family land uh, in Nebraska that three uh, generations. I've got several hundred acres up there, and I, I thought that, you know, if something were to happen and get serious enough to where I needed to leave my home, leave the city, and, and bug out, uh, that that's where I would go. But this is raw land, uh, great, nice hilly terrain. Uh, there's a very, very large creek that runs along one end of the property. Uh, so, you know, it was it was a good setting, but there's no infrastructure. There's three water wells for irrigation for the uh, for the watering system for the cattle that run on that land. But that's it. And if I was to build something, I would have to do it in rather short notice. Well, a few years before that, uh, I was up there on a family reunion, and my mother took all of the family over to this place that... Uh, I'll give you the name of it. It's called the Dancing Leaf Lodge. What that is is it's a reconstruction of an Indian uh, community there. And through artifacts, they were able to reproduce what uh, the Indians had built, you know, hundreds of years ago, and that's what they lived in. And the easiest way I can describe this is just picture an igloo buried halfway down into the ground made out of, you know, mud and, you know, just whatever natural resources that they had. Sure. And it was fairly large. It was about 30 feet in diameter. There was a fire pit that was right in the center, and they had a hole in the middle of the roof. So the uh, the fire formed the whole shelter. There was kind of a ledge or a, a shelf built all the way around the perimeter of the shelter, and that's where the people slept at night. And the air came into the shelter uh, through a entrance that you kind of crawl through, again, like an igloo, and that entrance was facing towards the south, so you got the solar warming, but it would it would shield it from the cold northern winds. And that, that shelter was really interesting, and it always kind of stuck in the back of my mind, but I tried to take that concept and think, okay, what could I do on uh, a more modern, uh, high-tech, low-tech uh, approach. I had done some research online, and I ran across a website that utilized what they call earth bags. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Yeah, they're, they're very cool. I'm actually considering building something with them just to figure out how they work. Right. Well, that made sense to me to, you know, to build a structure either partially with earth bags uh, and then cover it with, uh, with a wood structure. You know, I had the idea I could, uh, you know, preposition. Uh, a couple thousand earth bags, some tools, uh, several, you know, pressure-treated timbers and things like that. That way, if I had to bug out, uh, you know, my family could, uh, over the next, uh, you know, few days, erect a temporary structure. Uh, again, that is what kind of slowly led to my my shelter design as as I continued to evolve this. Uh, all internet research, I got to a point where I started to find some information, examples of people where they were utilizing shipping containers. And I have a lot of fabrication background, 
many, many years ago. Uh, I was a uh, foreman in uh, welding and fabrication machine shop, so I've got a lot of background that, that it was easy for me to see how I could take a you know, metal structure like that and put it in the ground and do everything I needed to do. It just, it just fit my experience. Gotcha. And, you know, here's the thing. I get all these questions about them, and I've looked at them, and I'm thinking about actually buying a couple and doing some things with them on my property once we move in January. And uh, I, But there's theory and there's practice, right? And whenever I get these questions about them, I'm always hesitant to get people too motivated in, unless they're going to do a lot of research in advance and do the things you have. Can you talk about maybe some of the misconceptions that people have about shipping containers, what people might expect, and they're going to end up being disappointed with, because I, I know there's some limitations there, right? Yeah, of course. And a lot of this goes into the actual design of the container, and I'll get into that here in a minute. Uh, the biggest thing that I can comment on as far as the disappointment that I experienced Part of it was the price and how much they have gone up just in recent months. When I first started looking at this, before I had actually found land to start my, my project on, I was searching Craigslist and then you know, the local newspapers and things like that. And, you know, you could spot one every now and then. You could find a 20-foot container for $1,400, $1,600 and a 40-footer for $1,900, $2,000. Usually you had to pay some sort of a delivery fee on top of that, but you know if it was in the local area, that was fairly modest. Uh, prices have gone up a lot. Uh, the days of the thousand dollar, fifteen hundred dollar container, those are gone. No, but that again, that's in my area. I'm quite a ways away from the ocean. Sure. You are living in a coastal region, uh, say down around Houston, where you know a lot of goods come in from overseas, go through the central states. Uh, from Houston or if you were in California would probably even be better because you've got all the, the products coming in from China but you know in my part of the country uh, they've gotten pretty expensive as, as far as the containers themselves one of the big drawbacks and you, you really have to hand pick these you know I wouldn't buy one over the phone and then just you know the guy says hey I've got a good container and it's $2,500 delivered you better take the time to go drive down and inspect it firsthand because one of the things that's a really big disappointment is these things have a wood floor in them. And depending on what they transported in these containers over the years, they can pick up a lot of odors. Mm. And if you have something where you have a chemical odor or you have uh, you know, a fuel odor or something like that, uh, I've got a good friend that uh, that has a as a home site where they decided to put in a 40-foot container as just an above-ground storage shelter. And they put it in in the fall, filled it up. I mean, shelves running down both sides, a little narrow walkway down the middle. Uh, worked out great in the next summer when it got hot. That thing turned into an oven and sitting outside in the sun with just minimal uh, tree cover. And all those odors came up out of the floor, and she ended up having to remove all of the shelving, all of the goods, clean any clothing or anything that was in it, uh, steam the floor, seal it with, uh, you know, with some sort of a uh, paint-type sealer, oil-based sealer, and then go ahead and paint the floor before she could put things back in. Well, it makes me think of, like, a, buying an old uh, Yugo SKS, and it, it seems like you've cleaned it up real good, and you go shoot it, and Cosmoline just starts weeping out of the forearm, except it's... Uh, it's an odor, and it's going into everything you've put in there. That's exactly. a that's a huge yeah, dude. Thanks for bringing that up because I mean I know that's going to be something people need to look out for. Yeah, it, it caused her a tremendous amount of work. Uh, so definitely something that you need to consider. Uh, knowing that in advance, I you know saw her and heard her experience. So when I went out and uh, started, you know, picking out my containers, uh, I went around and did a hands-on visual inspection. Actually had them pick them up. I went with a fairly large company, uh, picked them up in the air, was able to look at the underneath, uh, walk inside, crawl all around them, and, and make sure that uh, that you were getting something that uh, was was worth the money. And apparently, sniff the floors, right? Pardon? 
That's an apparently sniff well, too. I mean, when, when that when you when you first open up those doors, yeah, if there's any odor in there, especially if you're out in the summer months, it'll hit you like a ton yeah, of yeah. And if it's not real hot, just assume it's going to get worse when it is. And if I can't tolerate it, you know what my wife's going to say. Yeah, yeah, no way. So that's yep. that's that's uh, that's a little worse than a, a bucket that used to hold pickles, man. What's well, uh, so? How did you source them, and what was your average cost per unit? I mean, you talked about the cost going up. Right, right. Well, in my area, you know, general, uh, you know, South Central United States, uh, I used a company called Mobile Mini. I'm sure they're down in Dallas. I mean, you've probably seen uh, they specialize in rental units, but they also sell containers. Gotcha. And we have a, a storage yard here uh, where I live, where I was able to go out and, uh, again, hand and pick them. There were several companies locally that, that uh, offered containers, but competitively priced with one another. But Mobile Mini seemed to have the biggest selection, and I just got tired of running back and forth between all the different locations. I just... They'll give me a better deal if I'm buying several at a time, and, and they did. They worked with me. One neat thing about Mobile Mini, not that I'm trying to plug them, but they will actually do certain customizing for you. So if there was something that you wanted to do to a container uh, beforehand, you know, you had a design that, that you wanted to, you know, whether it be just welded a smaller pass-through door, man door in the side, or uh, in one of the, the big open folding doors in the front, uh, you name it, they do it. Uh, they, they do a lot of construction for utility companies, electric companies, and things where they use these things as, as anything from housing a portable, portable generator or uh, job site uh, office, uh, you know, mobile office buildings and things like that. So they're pretty good at that stuff. I'm sure they're expensive, but, you know, if that's, your, uh, that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. Size-wise, uh, I've seen 12-footers, 16-footers, 20-footers, 24, and 40-foot. Uh, variety of conditions. From what I was told by the salesman that I spoke to, uh, he said when they put these things in service, they put them in with the intention of leaving them in for 10 to 12 years. So depending on how many trips they're going back and forth, uh, you've got a lot of exposure to salt air and potential chemicals, uh, abusive truck forklift drivers, uh, train operators, things like that. So uh, you're, you're really lucky if you find one that doesn't have any damage whatsoever that, that's in a reasonable price. Again, you just got to look around and, uh, and see what's available. The uh, you can get into some fairly nice ones, but they go with the price. And sure. The, the, what they call these are one trippers. In other words, that made a trip, say from China to the United States, and that's it. There was no goods to go back. Uh, it was too costly to ship the thing back empty. So they're selling it as a you know, just one trip. So it's going to be super clean, uh, virtually no odors at all. <clears throat> Excuse me, just you know, extremely nice condition, but you pay for that. Yeah, well, what can I expect to pay for, let's say, a twenty footer in uh, pretty good shape, or one, or and what kind of high end if I wanted one of these one trippers that you know shows our trade deficit to be what it is? Right. Well, the twenty footers, honestly, today you probably won't see, but about a ten percent difference between a twenty footer and a forty footer. Okay. The twenty footers are getting hard to come by. And they're actually at a premium, so unless you just have to have a twenty, might as well get a forty. Uh, you're better off for a forty. Exactly. Cool. The, the odd sizes, the twelve, the sixteens, and the twenty fours, they'll, they'll, you'll pay more than that for a forty. It's like buying buying used RVs. You, everybody wants the slightly smaller ones because they're easy to tow and easier to deal yeah, with. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So they do have a unique. <clears throat> excuse me. They do have a unique model that they call a high Q. Rather than being eight foot tall, it's nine foot tall, mm. and they're kind of an oddball. So, if you don't have something where you're you're trying to work within a certain dimension, 
uh, you know, you might look at the high Q and actually get that extra, you know, foot of, of storage space sure. in there. And, and a lot of times they're not any more money. If anything, they're kind of an oddball, and and depending on the situation, you might actually pick one of those up for a few dollars less than you would uh, a normal one. But as far as a 40-footer goes, in my area, what I would call rough condition, in other words, the floor is not real clean but not odored badly, Uh, minor dings and dents down the sides, you're looking at about 2500 bucks. Okay. A nice one that is has been over the seas for many years but luckily has not had a lot of abuse you're looking at about 3500 and on the high end you get up to the one trippers uh unique feature about most of those on the new containers is that they have the double doors on both ends mm. which is about a 400 dollars option but you get a one tripper with double doors and you're looking at about six thousand bucks okay Okay. Well, I mean, the thing is that you, the more you pay, the, the better the condition is, and well, it's all about what you need and what you're willing, how much work you're willing to do if you want to redo the floors yourself or, or you know, paint them or seal them or what have you. But okay, but I mean, so anywhere between about two grand to six grand, depending on uh, on depending on what you need. Gotcha. You know, yeah, it's going to bury a, a container, you know, with doors on each end. So there's no doesn't make any sense. Uh, extra money for that, but if you're doing uh, above ground storage, and you're going to stick it back in the tree somewhere. Maybe throw a, uh, you know, just throw some limbs and branches on the top, or a camo cover of some sort. Uh, you know, maybe being able to access it from both ends might be an advantage. So I can see places where it would be. Yeah. You know, if there's something specific you needed out of it, and um, you know. This center is maybe holding some bulky items, being able to go around the backside. I can see it, you know. Sure. So, you know, having worked with them now, you, you're pretty far into your project. I've seen some of the photos you sent me. Um, what are the best attributes about using containers for construction or even just using one as, you know, a one-off shelter for a storage facility? Well, to answer this in just some fairly... Uh Responses, the the portability, the security, and the overall cost isn't even as expensive as they have gotten to be compared to doing something in concrete. Uh, it's it's still very affordable. And I mean, a lot of people want to bury these things, right? And I mean, and I, I get emails all the time. I'm going to buy two of these things. I'm going to bury them in the ground. I'm going to. Buy, put a big old dome over them or or whatever, and is it that simple, or is there more to it than that? Well, if you're doing this just for a a short term, where you're not worried about, uh, you know, having it last for, you know, five to ten years, and you're not going to put a lot of soil on the top, yeah, you could do it, but a lot of it depends on just how deep you're going to go. The the, the sides and the tops of these things are made of a 16-gauge, Deal. That's roughly eighty to ninety thousand thick. So it's got a lot of integrity, but it's the shape that creates the strength. The the sides of the containers have a have a rather aggressive corrugation to them. You have about a three inch wide flat, and then it angles in for about an inch and a half at a roughly forty five degree angle. And you have another three inch flat, then it angles back out. So that inch-and-a-half deep corrugation provides quite a bit of rigidity in the side. The roof of the container only has about a one-inch corrugation, and you can walk on the top. Just just a man's weight in the middle, you'll feel the roof buckling. Mm. you feel it rippling under your weight. So obviously, it's not going to tolerate a lot of weight. Uh, so if you're going to go in there and bury one, definitely have to do some some reinforcement to, to the container. Depends on what your what your use is. So what do you think about then about yeah taking the approach of well we're gonna bury it up to its roof. 
and then not really bury the roof, maybe roof do, roof over the roof with the conventional roofing methodology or something like that. So that we get a lot of concealment. I mean, it's you know, it could look it could be ground level that way, honestly. Uh, but we're not going to put all the way because top. I don't think people realize what six inches of topsoil by one square foot is, and then take that across a forty foot trailer. So is that kind of an easy way to, to kind of get around this problem? That Go ahead and bury. Be, yeah, that would be a much much simpler method. Uh, you could bury the thing up to the sides, uh, you know, almost up to the top. You're not going to have a lot of compression load uh, from the dirt on the sides like that. Uh, the back end of the container, the walls are have an even heavier corrugation, so you really don't have to worry about the tail end at all. It's just just the length of the sides. Gotcha. The thing is, you still have to worry about your waterproofing and your drainage, and we uh, we can go into that a little bit uh, a little bit more. Sure. In a couple of minutes. Sure. Uh, you know, what about uh, the other thing I get is people that want to like basically say. I'm going to use it to make a basement. Like I'm going to put a shed over it, or I'm going to put an RV over it, or what have you. And then this is going to be like a basement under there. That uh, that was actually when I first started looking at using a container and burying it. That was exactly how I planned on using it. There was a particular piece of land I was looking at that had uh, a wooded area that was kind of in a high ground, central on the land, gave you a good. Uh, view of everything around you and there was one particular spot where I thought okay I could come in and dig out a hole drop in a 20 footer which is what I was looking at at the time bury that and then put just enough dirt over the top of it to conceal it and then roll a you know, 28 30 foot travel trailer or a small uh, mobile home in on top of it uh, you know it, it, it's a good idea but you still have to keep in mind where the load is going to be applied to that container. If you're going to put it in the middle of the container, so you're going to park your axles right over the center of the container, you know, if that trailer weighs 6,000 pounds, those sides are not going to handle that weight. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you a little bit of uh, details as far as the, the containers themselves and the structure. The guys at Mobile Mini explained that if these things are loaded properly, when, when they're used in their shipping. If they're loaded uniformly, you can carry up to 100,000 pounds of cargo in them. Wow. But when you look at the container itself and it tells you the load rating label on the, on, on the doors, they don't go that high. And that's because they never uniformly weight them down. Sure. So typically they're going to be you know, 60 to 65,000 pounds growth weight. Because they're throwing like four thousand tickle me Elmos in the back, and then in the front they got a whole bunch of uh, of uh, Chinese farm uh, uh, tilapia, right? So it's yeah, exactly. uneven load. Exactly. But the strength of these things is all in the floor and in the four corner posts. The, the structure of the floor is actually a six inch C channel that runs lengthways along both sides, and then there's a six inch channel cross member every 12 inches on center that runs from one end of this thing to the other. So the the strength, again, is in the floor. And then on each end, you have a pretty massive column that houses the doors on the one end, and then on the other end, it has a heavy wall. So when they stack these things on a ship, typically they don't go more than six high. But if you've got 60,000 pounds per container and you've got six of them tall, you're looking at, with the weight of the containers, the container on the bottom sitting with roughly 400,000 pounds stacked on the roof. But that weight's mostly over your ends and your corners. It's not exactly. It's not exactly. tasting the weight in the center. No, not at all. So that, gotcha. that's, the, that's the thing. You know, again, the problem is in the roof skin and just a man's weight and cause buckling. If you were to jump on one of these things, you could dent the center of the roof. Wow. Just with a man's weight. So you've got to do some reinforcing inside. So, you know, 
what about putting them underneath a house or something like that? That's another thing I've heard. And I mean, you've kind of said how much weight they can hold. I mean, is it, but is is that even an option? Sure. It just depends on where you're going to put the. Say, say you have a retaining wall around the foundation of the house. If your retaining wall went across one end of the you know, the container where it's designed to carry that load, it could easily support a house. Gotcha, gotcha. But if you had like a load bearing wall above it, you'd want that to go either along your your side or along your your other end. Then exactly. So you just have to make sure that you you understand and take that design of the home and the shelter and, and pull them in together and, and really understand what those loads are going to be, where they're going to be, and if you need to reinforce the container elsewhere, you can do that, uh, especially when you're trying to put a load of dirt on it. Uh, soil weight, and, and we actually weighted, you know, didn't go by what, you know, some book said. We took the dirt on our property, we took a backhoe, we dug it up, Put it in a bucket, calculated the the volume of that bucket, and figured out exactly how much it was going to take to equal a cubic foot of earth. And a relatively moist soil, not saturated, but just what I would call lightly moist. You're looking at about a hundred pounds per square foot. Okay. So if you got a four or an eight by forty foot container, you're spreading out with one foot of soil, you're spreading out 96,000 pounds over the roof of that container. 96,000. If, <laughs> if you go in and add a little bit of a safety factor in there, yeah. that's what we did in our calculations. We based our, our calculations on 150 pounds per square foot, and that's where that 96,000 pounds comes in. Gotcha. Now, there's two different ways you can proceed to reinforce that container. I'd recommend doing it all on the inside. That way you're not disturbing the outside and it makes it easier for the waterproofing. Uh, you can either do it with wood or with steel, depending on what your, your skills are, uh, the type of tools that you've got available. You know, Again, my background being in, in uh, steel fabrication, now this was a piece of cake for me. Uh, I have a friend that's an architect that worked with me and a lot of the design areas, uh, you know, access to structural engineers and, and things like that, that was, were able to help us calculate the loads and what types of columns and, and beams we needed to place inside this thing. So is that what you, you primarily did to do the reinforcement is, um, is, is basically, I mean, I, I come from a, a family that's a, a bunch of coal miners, and the first thing I think of is, is putting in vertical supports. And is yeah. that the primary way that you did it? Exactly. And, and what I'm doing is I'm actually using a 3-inch C-channel. Because remember I said we've got a 3-inch wide corrugation in those sidewalls. I got you, yeah. Two and a half feet. All right, a 3-inch C-channel, they have two different weights. You, you, you determine the channel thickness by weight. They have a 4.1-pound channel and a 5-pound channel. That's the weight per foot of this material. Okay. The 4.1-pound channel is an inch and a half wide and three, I'm sorry, inch and a half deep on, on the legs and three inches wide. So it nests right down into that corrugation beautifully. So what I'm doing is I'm welding a vertical channel stiffener every so often to add column strength to the walls to help support that roof load. The, the tricky thing is, the, is what are you going to do to that roof? And again, this, I have a friend that uh, is an architect, and he did the calculations and said that if you were to simply take a 2x4, stand it up on edge, you're roughly 92 inches from inside to inside on the top of that container. If you take a 2x4, stand it up on edge, and put them on 16-inch centers, that should support your 300 pounds per square foot. I said, great. If a two by four will support it, I'm going to go bigger. I'm, sure. I, I'm always throwing in a, an additional safety factor. I've already thrown in a 50% safety factor for my soil load. Now I'm going to throw in a 40 to 50% safety factor 
in the board on top of that. And rather than using a 2x4, which is only 3.5 inches tall, I'm using a 2x6 that's 5.5 inches tall. And by the time we coat the board to match the contour, there's about a half-inch crown on the inside of these roofs. We end up with a board that's 5 inches tall in the center. So we're picking up an extra inch and a half uh, of height, which adds a tremendous amount of, of load-bearing capacity to that, that wood. And what we're doing to support the board, you, I'm sure you're asking, well, how are you going to stick a piece of wood up there in a steel container? You can't nail it in. Sure. Well, this is where my fabrication background came into play. I'm taking a 2-inch by 3-inch structural steel angle iron, and I'm welding it along the top edge of the container four and a half inches down from the roof skin. Those structural seed channels that I'm welding to the sides come up, and they also weld to those angle irons. So basically, I have an angle iron header that runs the entire 40-foot length of this container four and a half inches down from the ceiling. So when there's one of these on each side, so you simply cope your boards to where they slide in and they sit on that angle iron on each side, and that is what holds it up and that's what supports the whole roof. So just so I can kind of try to draw a picture for people listening here, if I st- after you've done this, if I'm standing in your in your uh, container and I'm looking up, basically it's going to look like I am standing underneath an unfinished f- floor above me, and I've got and and the boards will be running across eight foot long across all the way down and almost like being in a in an old farmhouse where you're in the basement you look up you see the floor joists mm-hmm. yeah but those floor joists are running eight foot long across not down the the long ways of the trail exactly right gotcha. right on and putting them on 16 inch centers there's roughly 30 of these things going crossways across that road so you're sacrificing about six inches of your headroom so gotcha. eight foot Almost eight foot headroom, you know, you're down to seven and a half feet. Seven and a half feet. But that, that's going to be the sacrifice you're going to have to make if you're going to put something underneath that amount of soil. Well, I can tell you as a Ukrainian, I ain't bumping my head on seven and a half feet, so. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> now, you could do the same thing with wood. You know, you could come in, uh, use a four by four uh, wood column. I'd recommend probably every four feet. Uh, have a vertical column. Again, you've got a plywood floor, and you've got cross members underneath that floor on 12-inch centers. Gotcha. Locate your 12-inch centers, and every fourth cross member is where you set the column. And then on top of the column, you'd want to make it short enough that you would allow for, rather than, you know, my angle iron welded to the inside structure, you're going to set a header panel out of wood on top of those columns. Do something like, uh, say, a couple of 2x8s or 2x10s that would nail in to the top of those columns. Yep. And then those would then support the 2x6 cross members that that go across the roof. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's very cool. It's actually not real hard to do either. No. So so for people out there that want to bury one container and they, they do want it completely covered over and they don't have metal fabrication background, if you have some decent carpentry skills... You can pull that off. Yeah. Very if you really cool. wanted to get uh, technical with it, you could go in there and you could, uh, uh, say, for example, you used a 2x8 and a 2x10 screwed together, and then you go in and cut the appropriate step in the top of your 4x4s so that you have a surface to be able to uh, lag sideways into. You follow me? I do. I do. Okay. Okay. Now... The thing you, you have to make sure when you're done, and, and we are close to this phase right now, uh, once you're all done and you get those uh, six-inch boards in there, actually test load the roof before you go pile dirt on it and go, um, that's not enough. Because, <laughs> again, we're, we're kind of uh, we're voyaging into some new areas here that nobody's really done. So uh, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to take a uh, 
two by ten, two by eights. We're going to make up a little four by four foot frame to screw it together with some uh, some decking screws, and we're going to pile sandbags in there. We're going to figure out how many sandbags we need to do to go in there, and that that four by four square foot section. You got sixteen square feet times three hundred uh, pounds per square foot. Well, we're going to stack that much sand weight right in the middle of that uh, container and make absolutely certain that it's going to carry the weight that we want it to because, again, we're working on every other rib on the roof with that 16-inch center. So if you had to, if you had a particularly heavy soil or if you wanted to go more than two feet, uh, either you could back off on how much soil you're going to put on it or you could go in and add additional cross members to uh, to the ceiling. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're going to test it in the center because structurally that would be its weakest possible point. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. And so, even load a little more on there. Sure. Sure. You know, safety is everything. You don't want to do all this work and then find out that you get it up there and you start piling your dirt on the top, and all of a sudden your timbers start cracking, and yeah. you have to get up there and, and remove it all and start all over again. My dad used to say, you don't want to break something when you're testing it, but you damn sure don't want to break it after you've tested it and thought it was okay. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing is, is coal mining background I think of is we have to breathe and we have to have airflow. So I've got this thing buried underground. How do I make sure that I've got airflow so that my my survival shelter doesn't become, you know, a, a survival crypt? <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of that's going to depend on whether you're just using it for dry storage or whether you're actually using it as, in the case, uh, like you mentioned, underneath a, a basement where you could potentially be using this as a tornado shelter, uh, a location to hide from the black helicopters, you know, what, whatever you, uh, whatever your motive is. Down here, I mean, I'll tell you what, the one thing that scares the heck out of me is tornadoes. So, you know, I'd want to oh, be yeah. able to go inside. I, I don't blame you. I've seen some. Uh, I've seen the TV programs of, uh, of what those things can do, and uh, I, I just the nice thing I like about living in an area where, uh, at least with tornadoes, you've got some warning that it's coming. You jump in your car, you drive 90 degrees, you stop, and you have a coke, and you <laughs> drive back home. Yeah, yeah. You know. It, it's not like you're sitting down in Florida where a uh, hurricane comes in and it waylays the area for two or three, four days and and uh, just just crazy. But back to the ventilation. Um, if you've got electricity, um, you know some sort of forced airflow would be best. If you've got a home that you're building on top of it, you've already got a central heat and air system. You know, take some ducting down through the uh, through the ceiling of that thing. And treat it just like you would any room in the house. You know, have a cold or have a hot air uh, or conditioned air coming in at the base of the, of the shelter and then have a, a outlet where you're going to pull the air out. Uh, bring the air in at one end and have the air out at the opposite end of the container in the ceiling. So you're making the air flow uh, across the length of the container and carrying the, uh, you know, fresh air uh with it as it goes. But you are talking, we're, at this point, we're making penetrations in the structure to make this happen. That's it. That's it. And that will go back into waterproofing. Uh, if you're burying the thing, now, say, for example, you were, you were doing something in the side of a, of a hill. You talked about your property there in Hot Springs. You know, maybe you're going to bury it on three sides and leave the doors open. Absolutely. That's kind of what I'm actually thinking. In that case, at the far back corner, you're going to have a penetration in the roof where you're going to bring, say, a four-inch or six-inch PVC uh, up through the ground and have some sort of a vent cap up there. And then at the on the end where you open your doors, at the very bottom of the doors, make a couple of uh, penetrations there and put some sort of a oh, picture like a dryer vent on the outside of a house where you've got a metal cup where the air comes in underneath it though, rather than blowing out, the air is going in, and then put you know some screens behind there to keep the little furry critters out and things like that. Gotcha. So, uh, go ahead. Humidity, 
humidity is going to be your biggest concern. Um, I'm actually still working on some some design ideas there. Uh, as a matter of fact, this morning I spent some time on the internet looking uh, looking into some solar dehumidifiers. And there's actually a company over in Denmark, I believe it is, that uh, has some pretty interesting designs that uh, I'm going to look into to see. Uh, they make them to where you could you could put them in the window of a, of a minivan um, on the side of a boat. You know, any any place where you have a really humid environment. So depending on what part of the country you're in, uh, and if, if humidity is a problem, you know. That's something that I'm still working on, but uh, I'll definitely solve it. Uh, it. It could mean just putting a, a regular basement-type dehumidifier in there and plug it in an extension cord at certain times of the year, just to just to keep the humidity down, there. So sure, the mold down and things like that. And they're not real high draw, so if you needed to set up some standalone solar, you could do that. I mean, that's exactly. that's not that's not like not like trying to run a central heating system or anything. No, so. no, no. So that that would no, work. You know, I, my mindset is is always as a worst case scenario. You know, grid down. Uh, so either look at solar or a natural method of doing this. Uh, if you can create, uh, well, like you've probably seen some of the designs where they create a solar uh, dehydrator. Sure. Principle. You know sun shining through a piece of glass you could do that on the front of a container that had uh, the doors exposed especially if it had a uh, you know the right facing uh, you know facing the sun in the right direction that if your terrain allows you to do that um, especially in the summer months when all your humidity is there you could potentially have a, you know uh, air circulate up through a chamber with a glass cover on it and then it as it circulates in there it dries out the air inside that box yeah because as long as we can move air we're gonna we're gonna create a drying effect that's why exactly. when, when you're exactly. sweating so bad and it's hot and you're not you don't really cool the room down but you sit in front of a fan it's that that um, that, that that dehumidification effect that right. pull, wicks, wicks that, that humidity off your body your perspiration cools you we do the same thing in, in a trailer with water though you talked you said quite a bit about waterproofing and all Whenever I think about burying something made out of steel, I think, well, it could rust through. I mean, what are the what are the odds that that's actually going to happen, and what can we do to kind of prevent it from rusting out and to waterproof everything? Well, you got to keep in mind, like I said earlier, these things are designed to be put into a salt air environment to ten to twelve years. So when these things were built in the factory, they took all of these into account. This material that these things are made of, at least at the sidewalls, I'm not certain about the structure of the floor, but the sidewalls and the roof are made of what's called a core tin steel, C-O-R-T-E-N, and it's also referred to as a weathering steel. Uh, they use this material uh, in actually in steel sculptures. You might have seen uh, occasionally where you'll see a metal sculpture that's just sitting out and it has a slightly rusted appearance to it. Gotcha. That that is typically built out of core ten steel. Believe it or not, the rust layer that develops on the surface of that metal it shields the lower body of metal from further rusting. It almost it turns it like a natural primer. Yeah, in a sense, yeah. So you've got you've got a real high quality material that they use this for building steam boilers and and all sorts of things where you have a lot of moisture and steel put together. On top of that, they go in and they uh, they use some pretty exotic primers. Uh, there's about four layers of primer on these things, and it's not just one type of primer; it's multiple layers of primer. So they they did everything they could do to keep these things from rusting, but. It goes back to the quality of what you're buying. If you buy something that's, you know, been banged around a little bit, and that primer's been cracked, and that thing's got a buckle in it, you're going to have some surface rust. It's just, it's inevitable. You're going to find it in some in some places. So, you're going to have to, you know, clean and treat the metal, uh, sandblast it, 
uh, use an acid etch primer would be your best way to get the adhesion to the metal and then uh, use some sort of an undercoating, rust proofing, uh, things like that to build it back up. You know, just regular rust-oleum primers, some pretty good stuff. Gotcha. But mainly it's getting adhesion to the metal. There are rust converters that you can brush on that, that uh, convert the rust to a black oxide. Uh, put Brush that on, let it dry for a while, uh, and then go ahead and prime over the top of that. It also sounds like this might be the place where guys buying one of them might be better suited to pay a little bit more money and get one of those one trippers. Exactly, exactly. Now, once you get the structure actually metal-proofed, if you were just doing a short duration, like you're going to throw it in the ground for five years and figure, hey, if it lasts that long, I'm happy, you probably wouldn't have to do any additional rust-proofing at all. But if you're putting something in the ground where you're going to want to see 10, 15, 20 years, like if you're putting it underneath a home, yep. you're not going to want to have to rip the side of that house down, <laughs> dig up that container, and put a new one in. So you're going to want to do everything you can do to make that thing last. Um, in that sort of a situation, or especially if you're going to go in and use multiple containers, I saw on an internet site where a guy took six containers, lined them up side by side, and welded them together. Sure. And then cut out passageways and door openings, and it just, you know, it made a, what, six of them, so it made a 50-foot, 48-foot long, uh, by 40-foot deep box. And it, if you do that, you know, you've obviously got some seams in there that you have to waterproof. Uh, you're not going to weld that thing 100%. Even if you did, you better be a good welder or you're probably going to have some penetration, some, some pinhole or something where you're going to get water through. So you're going to want to, again, prime those areas where you do any welding or repair work. Maybe use a, a structural urethane caulking to seal those and then as a secondary seal after that caulking has had a couple days to dry uh, what I'd recommend would be using a liquid EDPM rubber uh, they use this a lot today in commercial ripping and you can buy this, you can roll it on, you can brush it on and say you're going to weld two containers side by side you know, brush about a, a foot wide strip of this EDPM over the caulking, so you've got a double uh, strong seal right there. Now to seal the whole container, and this gets kind of expensive, but you know if you're putting this in the ground for a long period of time, you're just going to have to you know grin and bear it. Uh, they make an EDPM rubber sheeting. They make it in three thicknesses, thirty, sixty, and ninety thousandths. Uh, it comes in ten by hundred foot rolls. The 90 mil or 90,000 thick material is the best to use, has the least amount of chance that you're going to have something penetrate that rubber. Uh, it's between five and $600 for that 100-foot roll. Wow. But that's the best way to do it. Sure. And then they make special adhesives that where you overlap your seams, you know, you've got 10 foot wide, so you're, every 10 feet you're draping this thing from side to side. Gotcha and then overlap it six inches and they make special seaming materials that make sure that you don't get any leakage in between. Uh, again, this is the kind of material you go up and you look at a, you know, a 200,000 square foot Walmart store or something like that. Flat roof, that's yep. what they got on the roof of those things is this, gotcha. is this, this EDPM sheeting. Uh, it's tough. It lasts forever. Uh, it's just, that's, that's, that's the best way to go. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with your environmental factors as well. If we got a person in the Arizona high desert burying something out there, they're going to need a lot less concern about the effects of moisture than someone, let's say, in the Mississippi Valley. Yep. yep. Gotcha. The, the only other thing that you really have to think about if you're burying these things the ground is going to be what kind of nasty little critters are crawling around in that ground. Uh, the next thing you know to really look at is is drainage, but I'll, I'll just kind of answer this in in this next uh, in this next area of discussion. 
But uh, think of, think about the rodents that are going to be crawling around. You don't want to have one of those guys uh, crawl up and, and chew a hole through the side of your rubber and, and, and penetrate your waterproofing. And they'll do it. I, I used to do fiber optic cabling. That was my, my prior life. And uh, we had a, a job we did for the city of uh, Mesquite, Texas. And uh, we had this fiber optic cable, Kevlar, right? I mean, it's armored. And, you know, we had, you know, they lost a circuit between a library and a school. And we went out there and we shot it with OTDR and we found a distance. And we, it was a hand can with a splice point in it. And we went in there and there were, it was a pile of, um, we call them cotton rats that had just chewed through the cable and turned the Kevlar into nesting. So they will do that, right? So uh, on a drainage thing, right? Again, if I'm in the high desert, this is less of an issue. And even for me in Arkansas, I'm, I'm at like 1,100 feet up. So my drainage issues are different than someone in a more agricultural rich area. But how do you account for drainage? Because it ain't just about rusting out. I don't want it to fill up with water either. Exactly. You know, the, the floors of these things, you know, they have that wood decking, and they caulk those seams, but you know, that doesn't mean that they've got that thing 100% sealed. If you're in, in an environment where uh, you have a high floodplain, and that's something you'd want to look into, uh, obviously, if you can't put a basement underneath a, a conventional house, then you sure don't want to put one of these things in the ground. Gotcha. So, so learning all you can about what the floodplain is, you know, if, if, you've, got, uh, if you've got a neighbor that has a water well, Find out how deep they had to go before they hit water. You know, if they're down 150 feet, no big you know, deal. The odds are that yeah, you don't have a, a surface water four foot down. Yep. But uh, you know, just do all the investigation you can there before you find out. Nothing else. Dig the hole and just wait a few months before you put the. <laughs> see if it fills up with water. Right? See if you see any kind of a problem. Yeah. So I mean, I'm thinking uh, now that this this will work. Uh, for me, up in Arkansas, without a doubt, just because of my elevation, but here where I live right now, with this black clay gumbo soil, we call it, it right. it's probably not even worth thinking about. It just, it just ain't going to happen. Right, right. Well, again, it's all going to depend on the terrain and the soil. Um, once, you, once you've prepped your area, let's say you've got an area that, that has good drainage, uh, maybe you've got a little bit of a hillside that you're going to put it in, where you've got a certain amount of, of natural runoff, so you're not damming water up against it, but the water's going to tend to run away. You, you've got to be selective on where you're going to put this thing. Uh, you obviously want to lay a, a, a bed of coarse gravel below the container so that any water that was to work its way down the sides is not going to hit there and pool and fill up inside the container. I guess you could do kind of like do like maybe 2B stone or something like that underneath it. And if you have some elevation to work with, you can even kind of run a French drain system down and away exactly. from it. That, that's what I would highly recommend. If you're digging a hole in the ground, uh, treat it like a basement and run a French drain and then a sump pump. Again, it requires electricity. You better have a good redundancy in that because if electricity goes down, you might find yourself a foot deep in... Uh, you know, standing water inside your shelter and everything that's on that first level is going to be wet. So uh, one interesting thing that, that we're looking into, uh, I haven't found a local source for it yet, but uh, I, had a, I had an engineer recommend that we look into this is, and again, I'll go back and tie all this into the critters going through the, the rubber wall. Ideally, you would want to have about six inches of, say, one-inch gravel running up the sides of the container. Okay. So you got your container, your rubber liner, and then your gravel, and then your dirt. Well, if you've got a good coarse gravel, if you've got a gopher chewing along there and he hits that gravel, he's not <laughs> going any further. Yeah. Yeah, it's not his cup of tea. No. One product that we're looking into is recycled rubber. I've been ah. told that there are places where you can get these recycled tires where they grind them up and they yeah. make a chipped rubber. Yeah, that and would work awesome. That way it provides good drainage. It's not going to be sharp if you get the stuff where they filter out the, the, uh, the rubber that has the uh, steel. Uh, sure, the valves. Yeah. Right. If you're using just the chipped rubber, 
that also gives you a little extra cushion for those clay soils where you're getting yeah. a heaving and, and moving with the uh, with the yeah, you got some flex uh, there. That's that's a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm sourcing that in my area. Uh, you know, I, but I just think that that's uh, an excellent idea. I just have to find a source for it. Hopefully, there's got to be one because there, you know you go to Home Depot and Lowe's and all that now, and there's tons of the mulch that's basically made out of that. Now it'd be way too expensive to use mulch to do that with, but right. wherever they're getting their source from, that's that's what you're looking for is the raw material that. That actually opens up. I'm gonna have to think about that one because I can think of all kinds of things that you could do with that for sound dampening and insulation and other oh, things. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. That's 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 a, a bonus with having you on today. So we really kind of talked about. I mean, I think as deep as we can because it's a visual thing. So audio wise, we kind of covered this subject pretty good. But uh, I just wanted to ask you kind of at the end here, what are some steps you've taken other than your container project? within the realm of self-sufficiency. How many days do you have to listen? <laughs> oh, you got about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. Well, uh, for example, you know, about 18 months ago, uh, I started to get into buying the precious metals. I uh, started doing the canning, uh, bought an Excalibur dehydrator. We're doing the rice and beans and the Mylar, uh, you know, guns, ammunition, you name it. You know, I'm doing it. Um, you know, part of the reason that I, I I'm staying in a in a in a relatively close area to where I live. Like I mentioned earlier, I have land in Nebraska that yeah. would be ideal for me to do this on, but it's too far away. Gotcha. You know, I, I, I was uh, as a matter of fact, I was driving up this morning to my property, listening to your program. I have a uh, audio jack that I can plug into my sound system in my in my truck, so I can listen to you through the radio. And I'm listening to your program, and you were talking about uh, uh, this sort of thing. You know, guys bugging out, driving five or six hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that that's not that's not feasible. Again, I go back to my mindset. I'm thinking about the worst possible scenario. I'm not going to go in and invest. A large amount of money and time in a bug out property that's eight hours away. Agreed. Because the worst case scenario, we have an EMP or we have a solar uh, flare up, and and our vehicles are dead. You know, I can't haul all of my goods and my beans, bullion, and uh, bullets 500 miles on my back. So I have to be close enough. Uh, that I can get there basically within an hour's reach. And I know that's going to depend on the part of the country that you're in. Some people uh, an hour away, and you're still in dense population areas. Yeah, you've gone nowhere in an hour. On the Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, you drive an hour, and and you're out in DeKalb or Aurora, and uh, you're no safer than you are... uh, you know, you might as well. You're better off to get on a boat and go out in the middle of the lake. Yep. But uh, the other side of it was, you know, I got three kids all in college, and you know, we're not about to bug out and leave them behind. Sure. So we we have to have something to where, uh, you know, if we do get a false alarm or two, you talked about that on several of your programs. Yep. You know, I, I can't take my kids out of school. Uh, I can't take them away from their jobs for a false alarm. We've gone for three, four days. Uh, gee, guess what? I guess this wasn't it. Let's go back to our life. Yep. Well, I'm self-employed. I can do that. My kids go back. They've lost their job. Uh, you know, it, it's just going to mess with their life too much. So I, I just had to make some, you know, tough decisions um, and, and, you know, find a piece of property that, that suited all of the different things that uh, that I had to consider. It was which, which probably has a lot to do with your decision to do so much subterranean so that it can look like there's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And it, it, that depends on the property. I looked for a year and a half before I found something that that was suitable for my needs. You know, it, it, it's just everybody's got their own, you know, cup of tea in this situation. Uh I didn't want something that that had an already existing structure. 
you know, I'd rather build something to suit my needs. I don't want to pay for something uh, that I have no intention of continuing to use. You know, you, you talked about buying your place in Arkansas, but once you get there and get that paid for, you're going to buy another piece of land. Absolutely. Well, my piece of land is everything all rolled into one. And if the shit doesn't hit the fan, this is going to be my retirement home. Agreed. I'll go ahead Agreed. and build, I'll go ahead and build a, a conventional home on this five years, ten years down the road and cash in all, you know, cash in my silver and sell my guns and, and, uh, and build a conventional home and retire there. Understood. So, that's, uh, and it's, it, you know, folks, it's all in how you make it work. I mean, my second piece of land is really going to be a deer lease. But, yeah. you know, I'm also thinking about putting a, a, a buried container up there on it and have and, and have an RV, and we can bring that up there. And It's all about making this stuff fit your life. Mike's made his stuff fit his life, and I've made my stuff fit my life, and we're kind of to the extreme of, of what some people will do. And you don't have to – everybody else doesn't have to play to the extreme – they can adapt things to their life as well, but I think both of us would agree you better have some kind of a plan B because there's no guarantee that tomorrow when you wake up, things are going to look just like they do today. Well, cool, Mike. I mean, I really appreciate you being on. This is one of the more interesting shows I think I've ever done, and I think I've probably got a lot of people with a lot of ideas and a lot of questions, and I'm just going to say, folks, if you have questions, um, post them in the show notes, and I'm sure Mike might pop by and... Uh, do what he can either through me or, or, or directly himself on the blog and give us some answers there. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. Okay. Well, hey, with that, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up today. Again, folks, uh, thank you for tuning in and I uh, hope you enjoyed hearing from a listener. I uh, know we didn't tell you a whole lot about who he is personally, but I told him we'd do that for him if we brought him on. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco today here with Mike, uh, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Survival Podcast Friday Flashbacks. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You can also support our show by going to TSPAZ, that's T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAZ.com. Anytime you shop online, and while you'll support us no matter what you buy, you will find over 500 reviews of items I have personally tested and vouched for. And to stay in touch with us and never miss anything, Follow our channel or our group on Telegram. You can find links to that and all our social media options. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and check the show notes for any episode.